Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. I think it's safe to say that in general, most of us, not you of course, the rest of us, waste way too much time. This is most usually thought of as time being a potato on the couch, or procrastinating on something, or sleeping in. But have you ever spent hours working on something only to realize that you've been doing it wrong the entire time? If our focus isn't where it should be, we can be very busy doing all sorts of things, and yet wasting massive amounts of time, potentially years or decades, of our lives because our pursuits are meaningless. On today's episode, we're going to get wind of bovine flatulence, then we'll try to assemble the largest puzzle ever, and finally we'll see what people think about how we spent our time running the shortest race we'll ever run. So strap on your gas mask, look around on the floor for that missing piece, and get ready for the race of your life. Because, on your mark, and get set, here we go. Well, it's come to this. You can blame stagnant download. You can say I've been steadily moving towards shock jock status. You can blame my sinful depravity as a human being, but it's time to talk about burps and farts. But don't worry, not mine, as number one, nobody has written an article about me and my bodily functions. And number two, I simply don't do those things like most of you unrefined beasts. No, this is something slightly different. Found on NBCNews.com, headline, New Zealand to price sheep and cow burps to cut greenhouse gases. Mm Mm-hmm, yep, as I said, apparently it's come to this. So the other day, a draft plan was developed in New Zealand to, quote, put a price on agricultural emissions. Read that as find a way to tax people that can't afford it in even more ridiculous ways. This is the latest genius plan to, quote, tackle one of the country's biggest sources of greenhouse gases, belching sheep and cattle. The Ministry of Environment stated it plainly, this would make them, quote, the first country to have farmers pay for emissions from livestock. Ah, wonderful, Vundabar! New Zealand has approximately 10 million cattle and 26 million head of sheep, at least last time I counted they did, or maybe according to the article, either way. And agriculture accounts for about half of the so-called greenhouse gas emissions from the country, mainly methane. Global warming mental giants have long complained that those dirty farmers, the filthy rabble of society that literally makes the food that these green geniuses, uh, geniuses eat, have been exempted from the fantasy of stopping global warming, because as humans, that's a, a thing that we definitely can do. This plan, because as we all know, this is of the utmost urgency, will begin in 2025 and will require farmers to pay based on the, quote, short and long-lived farm gas this produced by their farm. The climate change minister, I, I think I see at least one way to cut a little bit of government costs here, but I digress, James Shaw said, quote, There is no question that we need to cut the amount of methane we are putting into the atmosphere, and an effective emissions pricing system for agriculture will play a key part in how we achieve that. 
Ah, well, good. If the science is settled... <laughs> Remember, anytime anyone says or even implies that the science is settled, you've moved out of the realm of science and into politics. Now, we all know that farmers definitely want to save the planet from imminent heat death, but we also know that they're cheap and greedy, so if they don't want to pay anything, they can simply change their feed additives to try to cut the gas, or they can plant trees, whole forests on their land, because they definitely have tons of acres of empty land that they just don't have a use for. Might as well plant trees, right? The added revenue, you know, for the government, not the farmers, would be spent very wisely directly stopping climate change. Well, I mean, it would be, quote, invested in research, development, and advisory services for farmers. Uh-huh. Studies and, uh, and more help for farmers that, that didn't ever ask for it. This would also very clearly, quote, enable sustainable food and fiber production for future generations while playing a fair part in meeting our country's climate commitments. Or so says Michael Ahi, the, and I'm not making this up, the chair of the primary sector partnership, Hiwaka Ikinoa. Now, on the side of evil and global fire, Susan Killsby, and shocker, her name is Killsby, an agricultural economist at ANZ Bank fumed, I'm assuming she fumed, quote, the proposal would potentially be the biggest regulatory disruption to farming since the removal of agricultural subsidies in the 1980s. <laughs> Drama much, Miss Killsby? Okay, so what does this mean? Well, here's the deal. I'm not going to go into any details about how much New Zealand exports in terms of ag, and it's totally not because I didn't look into it. I mean, I absolutely know, but look, I, you know, I just can't keep spoon-feeding, you know, you, you guys. Anywho, joking aside for right now, the reality is this will do exactly what the governmental power brokers, both in New Zealand and globally, want it to do. This will cause less young people to want to take up the thankless but vitally important career of farming, as well as force out older farmers that are just not willing to put up with even more garbage. For those that continue to farm and work to find their way through this newest insanity, there is no way they can eat the added cost of planting forests, using special feed blends, or paying more in taxes. So that cost will be passed to whoever they export to. Let's just call those people us, you know, the consumer. And although tests have been done for the last few years using varieties of seaweed blended into the cattle feed, they don't really know what this will do to taste or yield in milk or meat. A preliminary tests are positive. It does cut down the gas, and the taste of the milk apparently hasn't changed. But they also found that cows don't want to eat ocean lettuce. I mean, they're not sea cows. They're land cows. So why do these big cow fellas produce so much methane, and what is it actually doing? In the first of the four stomachs for cows and sheep, I know I'm not telling you anything here, but for the uneducated, you know, farmers and the like, the first tum-tum is called the rumen, and that's where the bulk of the death gas is produced. In a process called enteric fermentation, the bacteria in that stomach breaks down the complex carbohydrates into simple sugars, resulting in, and remember your stoichiometric balance equation, and no, I have no idea if I used that word in the correct way or not, but it sounded good, it results in volatile fatty acids, carbon dioxide, and methane, obviously. 
The volatile fatty acids are absorbed, and they eventually mosey their way to the liver, and they're used for energy, while the gases are expelled and allowed to go and kill the planet. One answer, of course, by people that are more pure evil than they are human at this point, is that we should stop eating meat. Well, we don't need to speak of those people, not implying anything, but they'll get their just vegan desserts. And if you want a quick trick of how to know if dessert gets one or two S's as compared to desert, just remember, dessert gets two S's because you always want more dessert. More dessert, more S's. That's literally how I remember. How sad is that? Anyway, a study that was, uh, well, maybe still is being done by researchers at UC Davis is looking at how to mitigate the gases. Something I thought I would never say about a college in California, this seems like a reasonable study. And I'll caveat reasonable in a world that believes that man needs to and has the ability to stop global warming. Frank Mitloner actually likes cows, actually thinks cows are being given a bad rap, and doesn't believe everyone going vegan or even dramatically cutting meat consumption is a realistic solution. He and the research team is focused on trying to make cattle production more environmentally sustainable and friendly. Now for the reality of methane, at least according to science, probably data, maybe facts. Look, I'm just going to assume that this is correct-ish. CO2 makes up about 76% of greenhouse gas emissions as of 2020. Methane makes up about 16%. But they claim that methane traps about 30 times the heat that CO2 does. But at the same time, methane only stays in the atmosphere for about 10 years versus CO2's 100 years. So is CO2 or methane worse for global warming? Yes. You fool, you should know the answer by now. Each one is worse than the other. Now, out of the 16% of the methane, 40% is from agriculture. So now, only 6.4% of the methane pumped into the atmosphere every year is agriculture-related. Even assuming all of that is from livestock, which I'd say most probably is, that's a small contributor, at least it really appears to be. In fact, according to Mr. Mitloner, cows and other ruminants, which I'd assume would be the four-stomached, rumen-owning beasts, account for only 4% of all greenhouse gases produced in the U.S., and beef cattle are only half of that number. The study further says that because of breeding techniques, genetics, and nutrition, back in 1970 we needed 140 million head of cattle to meet the demand for what we get from cattle, and now we only need 90 million head, and those are obviously producing more meat and other products because our population has grown. Globally, we have a slightly different picture with livestock accounting for 14.5% of greenhouse gases. But when you look to countries like India, with a massive cattle population, but very little consumption, as they are sacred animals over there, you have cows living a very long time producing more methane. And other regions of the world that have not modified their cattle, they take longer to get the milk, and they take longer to get to the right size for slaughter and processing, so they live longer lives there too, and they produce more methane. Now UC Davis is looking at alternatives, such as feedstock and breeding, to try to reduce the emissions. Studies have shown that some cattle produce more, and some less methane, and it appears to be genetically controlled. One potential is to breed the lower gas producers, and not the higher ones. And eventually, you breed your way to lower overall emissions. I mean, that, that sounds fine, I guess, I think. So look, this is all based on the premise that the planet is at the correct temperature right now, which is an unprovable, unscientific, and frankly arrogant idea 
that I've covered in past episodes. This is also based on the premise that man is causing the problem and can stop the problem. Again, this is an unprovable idea based in bad data, faulty logic, it's not actually science, and I've also covered that before. The larger issue in my mind regarding all of this is, um, leave farmers alone! See, from the very beginning of creation, we've had farmers. Adam was the first to work the land. I mean, he first tended the garden, and then he worked the ground by the sweat of his brow, dealing with thorns and thistles and weeds. You know, his fault. Then Cain apparently picked up the vegetation side of things, and Abel dealt with the livestock. And for all of our history, farming and farmers have done what they do because they know what they're doing, and it needs to be done. Now, sure... Modern science and modern-day agricultural chemical companies have found ways to improve the feed, which improves yield. They breed very unique, specialized livestock for very specialized purposes. But even back through the Bible times, selective breeding was done to get unblemished, optimum livestock. Although there are various interpretations of the story of Jacob and the speckled and spotted sheep and rams, he definitely did some measure of selective breeding. The Sabbath rules regarding the land were dictated by God to allow the ground to continue to produce crops indefinitely. Now, farmers, despite how they're treated, especially these days, are incredibly smart people. They're business people, they're biologists, they're geneticists, they're veterinarians, and the list goes on. They've always worked at trying to get the most yield out of their investment, breeding the best with the best animals crossbreeding vegetation to get the best crops. They may not work on the molecular level trying to alter DNA, but they know how to farm and they understand livestock. Whether they believe in a god or not, whether they believe in evolution or creation, they absolutely know that the animals that we have are fantastically designed to be what we need them to be and do what we need them to do. And for all of time, the most important thing of all the farmers have kept us fed. Despite what some believe, food doesn't just magically come out of a mysterious machine in the back of the grocery store. Farmers have always produced food to feed the masses, and as time moved forward and industry took hold and cities were built, less and less farmers were producing food for more and more people. Although poverty and starvation will always exist somewhere in the world, the fact that we have shifted to more deaths due to obesity rather than starvation is actually a testament to a number of modern scientific advancements, and even more so to the farmer for producing more food. But now we've got the green movement wanting them to be gone with their evil Mother Earth harming ways. The government sees them as a revenue stream, a cash cow, if you'll pardon the pun. Giant corporations are either trying to force the independent farmer out or force them into their way of doing things, and we're all going to pay the price eventually. The proposal to tax farmers for the very natural bodily processes of livestock based on a false narrative built on bad data and gross illogicality may only be in New Zealand. For now. But how long before it's in every nation that's signed on to the Paris Climate Agreement or some other worthless Green New Deal. How long before they see the results that their little tax didn't matter at all? It didn't affect global warming in the least, if they even truly thought it might. How long before they tax human cattle for just existing? And they already tried, mostly successfully, to put restrictions on our breathing for two years. Why not tax it or penalize it? 
How long before we have too many consumers and not enough producers because farmers have been shown and told they don't matter, so they mostly just go away. Again, as with everything, we've turned our back on God, decided we know best, we determined we understand exactly how this stuff works, and we continue our downward spiral into a doomed, depraved society. (laughs) Good day, everybody! For now, though, support your local farmers. Personally, I'd suggest shopping at a farmer's market or a local butcher. The taste and quality of the food, trust me, is better, and the price is either comparable or better when you do it that way. There may come a day when we won't have that option, but we might as well do it while we can. And then if garbage legislation like this comes nosing around your country, your state, fight back in whatever, and I have to say this, non-violent way that you can fight back. The planet, the animals, the vegetation, those are here for us. They were created for man, not the other way around. And it's time we stopped worshiping the earth and started acting in the created order ordained by God. Okay, think hard. When is the last time you put together a puzzle? No, I don't know is not an acceptable answer. Think hard. Now, I know for my youngest niece, she's likely not checking her calendar. She's probably checking the clock, as she loves puzzles. She might be working on one at this very minute. Rumor has it that if you look in the mirror and say puzzle three times, she'll appear behind you, gently shaking a box with at least a thousand pieces inside. Admittedly, though, I've never actually tested that rumor. Don't get me wrong, I'd love to see her and spend some time, but... uh, Like most of us, the thought of putting together a massive puzzle like that is utterly terrifying. It seems like these days we have way more important things to do, like binge-watch a streaming something or other, or catch up on our tickety-talks, or play on the puzzle app that we just installed on our phones. We don't have time to physically labor on an actual puzzle. Back in 1859, a Christian geologist suggested that the continents of the Earth appeared to look like jigsaw puzzle pieces that gave the appearance of fitting together. In 1912, German meteorologist Alfred Wagener proposed the basis for what we now call Pangaea, a massive supercontinent where all the pieces we have strewn about the globe once fit together in a large C-shape that stretched from pole to pole. And that brings us to our article, found on InterestingEngineering.com, headline, Pangaea Might Have Contributed to One of the World's Worst Mass Extinctions. So, the bulk of the article, in fact nearly the entire article, focuses on what Pangaea was, evidence for Pangaea, how Pangaea split into the continents we have today, etc., There is actually only about 10% of the total article that addresses the headline, which is an interesting choice. But look, if this is truly an engineer that's writing the article, (laughs) yeah, I, I get it. Anyway, as a very brief summary, when you look at the world today, you see that the general shape of the continents give the appearance of generally fitting together. If you were to shift them around, twist them a little bit, shrink some things enlarge some things, eliminate some things. This is part of the problem. The theory is that 200 million years ago, all the land was in fact one large landmass. The crust and land cracked the masses of land slowly over about 150 million years or so, shifted around to what we see today. The article gives the evidence for Pangaea, which basically breaks down to similar rock composition on various continents, 
suggesting that they were once connected, carbon dating and fossils and magnetic elements captured in various kinds of rocks that would suggest to geologists a previous orientation of the land masses. The article then goes into five facts about Pangaea. Facts about Pangaea. One, a mere 200 million years from now, we'll likely have another Pangaea. Number two, the climate of the landmass would have varied widely. I'll be honest, they show a landmass that stretches from pole to pole, with the equator in the middle, and one of their jaw-dropping facts is that the massive mass of land would have been cold on the ends, hot and dry toward the middle, and nice between those extremes. You know, like like the planet is today. <laughs> Number three, Pangaea might have contributed to one of the world's worst mass extinctions. And there it is. We finally got there. Well, sort of. We'll come back to that in a minute. Number four, Pangaea is the most recent supercontinent we know about. Well, I mean, I'd argue that we don't even actually know about this one. The theory suggests this is what used to be. So more accurately, we don't have a theory that suggests a more recent supercontinent. Number five, you can still see the pieces of the Pangaea puzzle today. Okay, well, no, you, you can't. The assumption is that the cracks, the splits around the various tectonic plates, show something. This is actually one of the things that makes me a rabid disbeliever in the theory of Pangaea. Before you think this is a purely secular scientific concept, many Christian scientists also believe this to be true. They believe the timing and cause is different, but they also believe there used to be a supercontinent, and it split up, shifted around, and we have what we have today. For the Christian, the prevailing view is that this entire thing happened during the flood and the months of the flood waters receding. Some Christians believe that this is what was meant by the Bible when it made a very small statement about Peleg, and in his day, the earth was divided. Okay, so let me start walking back through this concept of Pangaea. Keep in mind, I'm not a geologist, I'm not a scientist of any stripe, except for being an identical scientist as Bill Nye. You know, a mechanical engineer with a bachelor's of science degree to prove it. The following is my opinion based on a logical look at what we see and what we know. First of all, without going into it, you can do your own homework on this one. When the earth was divided during the days of Peleg, this was the dispersion of people groups by language at the Tower of Babel. To go through a global flood with the fountains of the deep breaking open, but believing that there was still a single landmass, and then, generations later, the earth cracked, split, shattered, and went through a massive shift with the only statement in the Bible of the earth was divided, is insanity. The amount of devastating energy that would be released, the release of massive amounts of magma, volcanic activity, earthquakes, floods, tsunamis, you name it, I just kind of think the massive amount of destruction and death would have warranted a bit more than a simple phrase. Plus, as you look at the context of the verse and the surrounding scriptures, there is no way that this is talking about a shattering of the planet. Next, I don't buy into millions of years. The dating methods, as I've covered multiple times before, are completely unreliable as they rely on massive unscientific assumptions. For instance, the dating of fossils and rocks uses circular reasoning. Fossils are dated by the layer of rock they were found in, but the rock is dated by the fossils contained in the layer. 
The entire thing is an assumption backing up an assumption that backs up the first assumption. That's not logical. It's not science. In fact, there is literally no scientific evidence for millions of years. The entire evolutionary theory is based off of unprovable, untestable interpretations of data and evidence. The young earth creationist can interpret the same data and evidence as proof of the young creation model and has written documentation to back it up. Okay, moving to the obvious fractures in the crust of the earth, the tectonic plates. These obviously exist, but how did they get there? Well, secular science really doesn't have an answer for this. Creation science does. In Genesis 7:11, we read, On that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. In my opinion, this is where the crust fractured and broke into pieces. This would have been unbelievably devastating, releasing what sounds to be massive amounts of water previously held underground, magma, it would have triggered, as I said, tornadoes, tsunamis, volcanoes. It would have been terrifying. Although not immune, the activity taking place below the water would have been at least somewhat muted by the water on the surface, where the ark rode. My guess is that Noah and his family did not feel the full force being unleashed below him. In Psalm 104, David writes, He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they may not again cover the earth. This would have been, in my opinion, where tectonic plates smashed together, forcing areas of land to thrust upward, while other land would have sunk downward, creating the large bowls we now call oceans. Was this as a result of plates rapidly moving and smashing into each other? Yeah, most likely, but not from a massive shifting of tectonic plates floating all around the globe. Think of the size of these plates. If they move even a little relative to another, we have entire cities that are brought to their knees because the city will be gone, shaken to the foundations. That's just an earthquake of today. Now back to Pangaea. When I look at these tectonic plates, I simply can't see anywhere for them to slide around each other in great movements. Keep in mind, what we see as the continents today are simply just the high spots in the land. We aren't islands. The continents are anchored to the crust. They're part of the crust. They're the high parts, with the mountains being the highest points on the continents. A new map of the tectonic plates was put out by SciTechDaily.com just recently, and you know what's curiously absent? Free space to move the continents or land masses all around. This gives a comprehensive map of the Pacific Plate, the North American Plate, the Cocos, the Caribbean, the Nazca Plate, the South American Plate, the African Plate, and a number of other plates that make up the other half of the globe. Although the continents appear to fit together like a bunch of puzzle pieces, which is purely a result of the water level, there is no way the plates could shift around to allow the continents to fit together. Again, in my opinion, it's physically impossible. It would be akin to having one of those little sliding tile number game things where you have to get the numbers in order by sliding the eight pieces around, but instead of having eight tiles and one open space, you had nine tiles and no open spaces. It's not possible. Unless you have space to manipulate the pieces, they simply can't move. Unless we're implying that the plates rode on top of and below the other plates and fully slid across and settled back down on the plane of the crust, 
they can't move. And I've never heard anyone suggest that, because that's crazy. I believe it was Henry Morris, but I, admittedly I might be wrong, that theorized that the originally created landmass, including the Garden of Eden, is now at the bottom of one of the largest oceans. He believed that it was part of what sunk down, poetically stated in Psalm 104. And from my opinion, I'd absolutely agree. If there was water under the crust of the earth, which there was if the fountains of the deep broke forth, the absence of water, the void created by the loss of water, could have easily led to that landmass collapsing. Think a massive sinkhole. Ever wonder why we don't find a treasure trove of human fossils around the planet? Under this theory, the entire population of the original creation would have dropped thousands, possibly tens of thousands of feet, quickly being covered in the torrents of water. The human remains would be down there. In the Pangaea theory, we should find as many human fossils as we find dinosaur, if not many, many more. But we just don't. As the valleys, including that landmass, sunk down and the relatively small but powerful movements of the new, fractured, and somewhat soft fault lines, and I would say soft from the potential heat from magma, or soft from being completely saturated, the faults, the interfaces of the various plates, smash together, forming mountains, further causing the land behind it to sink down to whatever degree. As the water rolled down into the newly formed basins, what we call oceans, the global water level would drop, revealing the land masses that were always elevated, but are now the highest around the world, and poke out of the water our continents. I would also have to surmise from the fact that mountains were formed that the overall circumference of the planet is slightly smaller than it was when it was first created. And if you've ever twisted yourself up on a swing, then tucked your legs, then put them out straight, you know that the smaller you are, the closer you have all of your mass to the axis, the faster you'll spin. We know that the rotation of the Earth is slowing down. Maybe at 1,500 years after creation, this slight change in the circumference sped the Earth up slightly so that the actual length of day at creation is even closer to the length of day we have today. We're talking fractions of a second most likely, but still, it's a, it's a theory. So no, I don't think Pangaea is a viable explanation of the continents we have today. I also believe we could wait as many billions of years as you'd like, and we'll never see the plates actually shift around to any great degree, as they simply can't. They may have faults, but they all fit together. No open space to help them slip and slide around each other. So finally, let's take a quick peek at the entire premise of their article that they dedicated an entire 10% of their write-up to, which is pretty much why we did the same here. Quote, Pangaea might have contributed to one of the world's worst mass extinctions. Well, the science puts this mass extinction event at about 250 million years ago. Personally, I'd put it at about 4,500 years ago, at which time they say that 70 to 90% of all life was wiped off the face of the earth. Now, I'm not sure what they're calling life, but if we count swimming things as life, then yeah, I'd probably be good with that range, although I'd put it closer to the 90%, as I guarantee a massive amount of most of the swimming things were also killed. A lot of bad stuff going on down there during the flood, right? The author says, quote, Geologists and paleontologists can't be entirely sure why this happened. Recent papers suggest, 
volcanic activity led to the release of an immense amount of greenhouse gases leading to, anybody, anybody, global warming and ocean acidification on a vast scale. First of all, of course they think it was greenhouse gas and global warming and acidification of the waters, because that's what they think we have today. They believe those things will destroy the planet and nearly all life today, and like much of science today, they've lost the ability to think and reason independently of the accepted groupthink. Second, there are some of us that know why this so-called great dying happened. See, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. Skipping ahead, about 1,500 years or so, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You want to know why the great dying occurred? Sin. One simple word. Sin. But science struggles along to try to find the answer. The answer that doesn't include anything from the Bible. It could have been volcanoes, or maybe an asteroid, or a supernova somewhere out there, or a combo platter if you'd prefer. But what they do know is that, quote, such was the change to the global climate that nowhere on Earth appears to have been a safe haven. Many lineages were destroyed never to return, including the mighty sea scorpions, trilobites, and many more. Okay, yeah, those things may have disappeared, and it may have been acidification. There was definitely a massive asteroid strike or two, and maybe some global warming, followed by a massive ice age. But that's just God supernaturally directing natural processes as punishment for our sin. So now as I wrap up, let's back up to Pangea one more time. As I've said in the past, Answers in Genesis subscribes to the theory of Pangea, but in biblical terms, at the time of the flood, with rapid movement of the plates. I personally don't see how that could be a rational theory. That said, none of us has anything concrete to go on. We have what we see today. We have the very little we're told in the Bible, and we have our worldviews. So I want to be very clear. I can disagree with AIG on this and not worry about it in the least. This is not a core doctrine. This is not a secondary and not even a tertiary issue. There is literally no reason that a belief one way or the other has anything to do with the creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion, Christ, cross, or consummation, which incidentally are the seven seas of Christianity, per Answers in Genesis. So we can disagree on the topic of Pangea and still break bread as brothers, 
rather than break fellowship and unity as combatants. Paul told the Philippians, and by extension told us, to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and further, to be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of us look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. So, as disagreements with fellow Christians arise, and they will, approach it cautiously, knowing that in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Discern between essentials and non-essentials, then approach with love and Christian charity, a conversation to either guide a prodigal back or to sharpen iron with iron. So, what do you think? Pangea, yes or no? And depending on your answer, you want to fight about it? I think for most people, the older you get, the more you contemplate the end of life. Okay, yeah, I know, a solid, morbid start, sorry. It is true, though, as you transition from the perception that you likely have more years in front of you to knowing that you have more years behind you, you start to look back at your life and wonder, where did it go? What did I do with this thing? The question of legacy, either by name or by concept, will undoubtedly be something most of us think of. What's somewhat depressing is the fact that, in reality, for most of us, it won't take more than a few generations at most to be essentially completely forgotten. Most of us aren't changing the world, aren't making blockbusters, aren't having wings of colleges named after us. Most of us get up, go to work, come home, spend some time with family if we have one, we raise kids, we mow the lawn, for those of faith, we go to church, we may volunteer, we may contribute to charity, and eventually, at some point, we move into eternity. And regardless of what you do in life or how long that life is, we all do that last bit. The most important question being, which eternity will you be moving into? There are only two options. It's either heaven and a life spent with your creator, your savior, in paradise, or in hell, experiencing the wrath of your creator being poured out on you for all of eternity. But back to earth for a few minutes. How do you want to be remembered? Now, I've thought of things I've done, things I've designed at my various jobs, things I've fixed, systems I've set in place, programs I've created. Maybe some of those things are still out there. Maybe they'll last for a while. But at this point, I'm just a name on a CAD drawing. I've thought about church, things I've done there, contributions I've made, kids I've taught in Sunday school. And again, that's a generation or two once I'm gone from being lost to history. Even this podcast is time-stamped and destined to be forgotten shortly after my demise— but as a parent, I wonder how my kid will remember me. What would she remember? How would she see me if I were to die today? Assuming that doesn't happen, what am I doing? What should I be doing? Well, that brings us to our very, very short article for today. Found on WSAZ.com headline, Tombstone with Father's Hidden Message is Causing Controversy. As many loved ones do, they'll have a special image or a special message, a favorite verse or a favorite saying engraved on a tombstone that captures who that person was. Well, for the children of Stephen Paul Owens of Polk County, Iowa, the phrase they felt best captured their father was one of his favorites. F off. A spelled out, of course. Now, they didn't just engrave the expletive across the face of the stone, they hid it in a message. Quote, Forever in our hearts, until we meet again, cherished memories, known as our son, brother, father, papa, uncle, friend, and cousin. 
The message was seven lines, a break between the first four lines and the last three, each line starting with the crucial letter needed to spell out vertically, F off. The cemetery isn't overly happy about this, as they don't believe profanity should be part of a cemetery experience where people choose to lay their loved ones to rest and friends and family members come to pay the respect. Daughter Lindsay said, quote, it was definitely his term of endearment. If he didn't like you, he didn't speak to you. It's just who he was. Son Zachary said, quote, no one's forcing anyone to come and look at it. That's a choice that you make. We didn't do it to offend anyone, make anyone mad or hurt anyone's feelings. We did it because it was our father and we love him and that's how we remember him. So should they be allowed to keep the headstone? Okay, well, personally, I'd say that they have the freedom to do so if they choose. However, if the cemetery has specific rules that must be followed in the contract or the agreement that they agree to, then those rules must be adhered to. So I guess it's dependent on the contract and the discretion of the cemetery. That's neither here nor there. The bigger question to me returns us to the intro to this review. What legacy are you and I leaving? If our loved ones, parents, children, friends, family, whoever will be responsible for obtaining the headstone, if they had to sum up your life in a few words, what would be engraved? I personally find this tombstone to be, um, sad. I know some will find it funny, but I don't. This isn't funny to me, and I think you and I know that I know funny. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't mean to take anything away from the deceased. He may have been a very nice, very loving man, not taking anything away from the children either. They sound like they just wanted to do something to remember him. What I find sad, though, is that this hidden phrase is the thing they felt he was best remembered for to the point that they had it engraved in stone. His use of the phrase F off was his thing, the legacy that they felt defined him. I've heard it said, and I don't know who said it first, but the dash between the two dates on your tombstone encapsulates your entire life on this planet. What did you do with your dash? Two, three generations down the road as people are walking past the rows of headstones and they come across this one, what will they think? Now let me give you some alternatives. Maybe something we can't obtain, but something to strive for, where when generations, many generations down the road, people walk past your tombstone, they know exactly who you were by the engraving. Blameless, upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. This was how Job is described in Job 1.1, and again by God himself in Job 1.8. How wonderful would it be to have that engraved, legitimately on your tombstone. A righteous man, blameless in his generation, walked with God. This is how Noah was described in Genesis 6-9. How would it be to have that engraved on your tombstone? A man after God's own heart. This is how Samuel described David to Saul when he was relaying the message from God that the mantle of kingship over Israel was being removed from Saul. What would that message engraved on your tombstone say to generations in the future? Walked with God. This was stated twice in a row in Genesis 5 when speaking about Enoch. That simple phrase says so much. Or you could go to Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith. Look how those saints we find in the Old Testament are talked about. I take stock of my life, the dash I'm currently working on, and I wonder what my engraving would say. What do I want it to say? Could what I would like it to say be honestly engraved? I'm the type of person that wouldn't want something flowery and good-sounding to be engraved if it wasn't true. This is one reason why I tend to get funny cards for birthdays, anniversaries, etc., because 
Funny is easy. When I start looking at serious cards, the heartfelt ones, it gets very difficult to find the right card, at least for me. We just came out of Father's Day and not that long ago Mother's Day, and I could just grab a nice-sounding card off of the rack, but if it doesn't apply, if it doesn't describe the relationship I had with that parent, it's meaningless. I'm not saying that it's always possible to get the perfect card, but in my opinion, it should be as close as possible. Maybe I'm odd in that way, in addition to so many, so many other ways, but that's important to me. And the same can be said for how I would view my tombstone. Only put it on there if it's true. So to bring this short review to a close, to tie it up with a nice, dainty, pretty, but manly and ruggedly handsome bow, and pointing firmly at myself while saying this, what legacy are we leaving? How will we be remembered? The Bible gives us so many examples of what to do and what not to do, so much wisdom, so many instructions and guidelines. We, again finger pointed at me, need to learn these, know these, take them to heart. It's never too late to leave a legacy. Until your two-inch dash comes to an end, time remains. So with that, let's get into the Word of God. Let's decide who we are, what we want to be remembered for. Let's fall on our knees to beg God for his help as we know that we can't do this on our own. We know that this won't come naturally. And then let's put in the hard work. Work because we are saved, not to be saved. And be the people that God called us to be. If we strive to love God with all we are and love our neighbors as ourselves— the dash and the legacy will take care of themselves. Then it's simply a matter of your loved ones requesting the truth be engraved and displayed for generations to come. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.